Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, I'm going to continue my series. I'm actually going to conclude my series dealing with my view of Genesis 1 as a polemical literary framework against the Egyptian context from which Moses and the Israelites were coming. But before we get to that, I'd like to remind you that if you are not a follower of the mentionables, yet. Please go to the Facebook group, The Mentionables, uh, follow that group, and you can see a lot of the great uh, content and everything that we are promoting there. We're also having our first National Mentionables Conference on May 18th and 19th. This will be in Greensboro. Uh, if you are in that area or you'd like to travel to that area or you'd like to see us, even if you don't want to travel to that area, please sign up. Tickets are on sale now uh, you can come here some really great uh, discussions and plenary sessions uh, and you can hear myself uh, and friend of the show uh, Ben Watkins debate whether or not the God of the Bible uh, is the best explanation for the suffering in the world. So that's going to be a really great event. Find the Mentionables group on uh, Facebook. There's some other ways to find it that are, are listed uh, there. As always, if you have uh, any type of desire to help support the show, why not head on over to Patreon or to the blog and become a sponsor. Your gift of any amount really does help uh, me with a little bit more um, higher-end equipment to always improve the audio quality and everything, uh, some hosting fees and everything that goes along with that. If you don't have the financial resources or you just don't think the show is worth your money but you still like the content of the show, head on over to iTunes, give us a great review. Uh, your reviews, your star ratings, everything helps the Freed Thinker to show up higher in search results. So that is another way, even if you can't financially help the show, that you can really, really, really help us out. One last thing, uh, I recently moved into a new house away from the apartment and the recording conditions here are uh, in some ways much, much better. Uh, my wife can take the children's monitors and go watch TV in the other room because I'm not uh, sitting right in our only uh, living space, uh, but the room that I'm in now is huge and has hardwood floors and is rather echoey, so <laughs> the sound quality uh, is not uh, the best on, on this episode, as you can hear as I speak right now. So anyone who has an audio engineering background and can have any recommendations, please reach out to me. Uh, I would love some insights of how to, for how to fix this. Uh, so please, please, please reach out. Uh, with that, let's dive right into this show dealing with Genesis 1 as a polemical literary framework. Enjoy the show.
We've examined numerous similarities between the creation account of Genesis 1 and the creation myths of the Egyptians to establish a clear textual link between two bodies of literature, Jewish and Egyptian. The similarities are stark and telling and, as I've argued, best understood not as what Currid calls crass plagiarism, but rather as an intentional polemic against a competing religious worldview. This polemical paradigm is supported not only in the similarities between the various texts, but also in the substantive manner in which the author of Genesis altered the myths which he was satirizing. For our purposes here, we will look at only some of the differences between Genesis 1 and other creation narratives. While the Egyptian religious landscape is the immediate context from which Israel left, as well as the mixed multitude of the Egyptians that left with them, the Canaanites and the Mesopotamian myths loomed on their horizon, and such anticipation may explain the author's preemptive allusions to this other body of literature. First is the differing view of God's relationship to the earth or the land. In Genesis 1, God is presented to the reader as a majestic and sovereign creator of all the cosmos. Unlike Marduk in the Babylonian myths, God is mentioned 37 times just between Genesis 1-1 and 2-3, and is clearly shown to be the sole actor in the narrative, intentionally and unilaterally driving creation along. It is not the procreative or destructive acts of the deities that bring about the creation of the world as their bodies divide, but rather the intentional and direct action of the one creator God that causes the world to be formed and filled. In fact, this difference between the singular and direct act of forming and filling on the one hand, compared to th the theogonies of foreign gods and the world uh, and the world together on the other, is likely a large part of the author's overall polemical strategy. The author of Genesis 1 was also evidently writing to taunt the astral worship of the religious views surrounding Israel. We see in the myths of the Egyptians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Canaanites, and others that almost every aspect of creation was considered to be divine in some manner. These myths were not quite pantheistic in which the created order is divine, but rather that nearly every part of nature was a deity unto itself. Within this context, the luminaries were some of the most often deified parts of the cosmic landscape. In stark contract to this, the author of Genesis did not call the sun and the moon by their normal Hebrew words for sun, semes, or any other of the several words for moon, such as labana or yarech, but called them chama or hagadol, or, which is the greater light, or chama and hagatan, which is the lesser light. This is likely because semes and yarech had developed into actual names for astral deities in their context and were no longer merely words describing the natural sun and moon. The author of Genesis then was attempting to show that the sun and the moon were not deities in the sky made from the dead corpse of a god such as the goddess Tiamat from the Enuma Elish, but rather were purely natural entities which God saw fit to create for the purpose or function of governing the natural order of the days and seasons that his created image bearers would experience during their life on earth. 
Genesis makes clear that the function of the luminaries is for the purpose of marking out calendar events like days, seasons, and years. This is day four in the creation order. For this was also part of the Babylonian myths. However, in Genesis, the purpose of the luminaries was to help ensure that the earth would be a functional space for humanity to inhabit, that it would no longer be formless and void, that is, it would no longer be tohu vabohu. Genesis 1 also flaunts to its competition that Yahweh has no rivals. Absent from the Jewish creation account is any conception of divine warfare or copulation, part of the conceptual furniture within all other creation accounts. While this theme will be picked up on and developed in later biblical writings, especially in the poets and the prophets, God is not displayed as a divine warrior in Genesis 1. There was no great battle in the heavens where Yahweh engaged in mortal combat with a rival deity in order to solidify his power or to bring about the cosmic order. Genesis 1 clearly intends its readers to understand that Yahweh is God alone and that it is always has been that way. If its readers were going to engage in the rightful worship of Yahweh that will be spelled out in the law in the future, they must worship God as God himself had commanded them and not follow after the nations or their pagan and polyistic religious practices. That is the creator's prerogative. This means that they would be forbidden from the worship of the luminaries, the rivers, the storm, any animals, or anything of the sort as lesser deities or even as manifestations of the creator. This polemical difference is so strikingly important in Deuteronomy 4.19 that they warned of it directly. Quote, and beware, lest, your eyes, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole of heaven. End quote. Notice that the author was concerned specifically that when the Hebrews and the mixed multitudes of Egyptians enter the land, that they not give in to their desire for astral worship, specifically because the astral entities are merely things that God has created for all peoples to be able to tell the seasons during life on earth. This connection between the creation and fidelity to the law is thus undeniable. This connection also would have served the function of highlighting the covenant fidelity of Yahweh. The frequent comments in the Pentateuch about God being faithful to his covenant promises, such as Deuteronomy 7.9, or that there is no God like Yahweh in any other nation, such as Deuteronomy 4.7, would be a constant reminder that God has always been and always will be the one and only true God. Unlike their contemporaries, the Israelites were to understand that Yahweh is exceedingly fair and just and not given to pettiness or vindictiveness like the deities of their neighbors. The gods of the other nations were basically like super powerful humans willing to cheat and connive their way to more power, sex, wealth, and food. Yes, food. Rather, the authors of the Old Testament consistently show Yahweh as being just 
and not conniving, as well as self-sufficient and not in need of anything. This leads to the next aspect of the polemics, the temple texts. J.P. Fesco, in his book, Last Things First, makes the compelling case that the garden is to be understood as an archetypal temple and that Adam was really the first priest to the Lord. The geography of the garden temple can be represented in the following way. For those of you with the paper, there's a helpful uh, chart here. It shows the garden temple, which is actually a threefold structure with the terrestrial earth on the outside, the land in the middle, and the garden at the very center. It mirrors the threefold structure of the temple or the tabernacle, which has the exterior courtyards outside, the holy place where sacrifices happen on the inside, and then the holy of holies, which is where God met with his people, just like God walked with Adam in the garden. In the graphic above, or the one that I just mentioned, we can see that the earth, land, and garden is modeled after or anticipates the tabernacle structure that God would have delivered to Moses in the giving of the law. This is significant for several reasons in understanding the role of polemics in Genesis 1. First, we must remember that in ancient Near Eastern conceptions of worship, the role of humanity was to feed the gods by their sacrifices in the temples. The food that they offered was the literal sustenance of the gods. That is, the reason that the gods demanded temples to be built and offerings to be made was that they really needed humans to feed and to shelter them, or at least if they wanted food and shelter without needing to do it themselves. When we look at the Babylonian myth of the Enuma Elish, for example, Humans were created for the sole purpose of providing food for the gods so that they would not have to work themselves. Humans were considered menial labor for the gods, who would then repay their efforts with rain, vital crops, and fertility if they offered enough. The deities in the ancient Near East were entirely dependent on humans for their survival, just as much as humans were on the gods for theirs. It was a rather symbiotic relationship, even if the scales of power were lopsided. We can see this clearly in the Epic of Gilgamesh, a Mesopotamian flood story that bears striking similarities to the flood narrative in Genesis 6. In this epic tale, Utnapishtim, who is the parallel to Noah, is carried through a major flood on his boat, and when he survives, he offers sacrifices to the gods. The strange thing for readers only familiar with the biblical flood narrative is that, the epic, that in the epic, the gods frantically flocked to feed on the sacrifice because they were ravenously hungry. This is because during the flood in which all the people and all the crops had been obliterated, no offerings of food were given and thus the gods actually had not eaten. The gods were quite literally starving. At this point, Utnapishtim and his wife were granted eternal life by the gods, not for their righteousness like in Noah, but in payment for saving the lives of the famished gods by feeding them with their sacrifices. Genesis 1, however, flips the script on the temple theme of the ancient Near Eastern religious climate. Rather than the temple being a place where God is sheltered and fed by his people in order to stay alive, the temple is where God's people come for their spiritual sustenance. The emphasis is not on what man does for the gods, but on what God does to maintain his people. 
In fact, this was apparently the purpose for God's formation of the garden and the land to begin with, not that humans were made to support Yahweh in the land, but that the land was fashioned to make a habitable place in which humans were to live, be sustained, and enjoy fellowship with God. Sacrifices were not given as nourishment to Yahweh at the temple, but rather primarily as offerings of thanksgiving and atonement for what had already taken place, either God's blessings or man's sin. Further support for the temple theme and the polemical shift away from other ancient Near Eastern cultic systems can be seen by looking at the role Adam played in the garden. In Genesis 2.15, we're told that Adam is to tend, that is, avad, and to keep, or shamar, the garden. Words that are also found in Numbers 3.7-8, 8.26, and 18.5-6 18, in description of the duties of the Levitical priests within the tabernacle. We read in Numbers 3.7-8 the following, And the priest shall keep, shamar, his charge, and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service, avad, of the tabernacle. And they shall keep, shamar, all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service, avad, of the tabernacle. End quote. The author of Genesis was expressly highlighting Adam's priestly role within the garden temple in light of the Levitical regulations found later in the Pentateuch. Yet this implicitly underscores the polemical point which he has been making throughout the creation narrative. Adam was not there to shelter and feed Yahweh, but rather was to act as his vice-regent over creation, ministering before the Lord in the garden. It is precisely at this point that the author drives the polemical differences home to his audience in the roles which are ascribed to Adam. The proper role of mankind in creation and while living in the land is not to feed and shelter the gods, but rather to rule over creation and to care for it. We are told that man is to have dominion, rada, over creation, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and not to be subservient subjects to the divine forces of nature. Humans are to subdue, or kabas, they're to subdue nature, a very strong term meaning to bring something under authority. In the Hebrew creation account, humans are viewed as vice-regents of Yahweh, who are only under his authority, but who still have a special authoritative role over the environment that he placed them in. This is the capstone of the polemical case that the creation account is making. Humanity is not subject to every whim of a divinely imbued cosmic order. They are not the bottom of the heap needing to be subservient and servile to all of creation. They are the image bearers of the one true God, the only creator, Yahweh, and are given authority to exercise dominion over all creation. It is a complete 180 degree reversal from the religious mythos of every surrounding culture. Conclusion. As has been demonstrated, the style in which the author of Genesis composed the creation narrative of Genesis 1 was a highly stylized narrative meant to polemicize the surrounding pagan conceptions of the gods, the created order, and man's place within it. 
The primary recipient of such polemical scorn is the Egyptians, out of which the Hebrews had come under Moses, but is also focused at other ancient Near Eastern creation mythologies. Rather than being a straightforward scientific account of how God mechanistically created the universe and the earth and all of the biodiversity therein, such as how many young earth creationists and old earth creation advocates read the account, Genesis 1 is primarily concerned to encourage Israel from veering away from understanding God as the one and only creator of the natural world into worshiping the natural, natural entities as gods, a threat posed by the religions of the lands into which they were moving and that surrounded them throughout their history. It is my view that attempting to understand Genesis as a statement about cosmogony, geology, or biology is to not only impose modern questions with which the ancient author would be utterly unconcerned, but also runs the risk of missing the major themes and motifs that he would have wanted his original audience to understand. This view allows those who find, for scientific reasons, the young earth creationists, old earth creationists, theistic evolution or evolutionary models compelling, to have those discussions in that arena, in the scientific arena. And it frees them from the desperate attempts to contort Genesis 1 in order to force it into modernistic, quasi-scientific frameworks that would have been foreign to the original author and reading audience remember, a foreign author and reading audience to our scientific modern culture. While the question of the historicity of the text was not addressed in this paper or this series, I think that it is entirely compatible with this view, though it is surely a subject for further study given the thesis argued for so far. In summary, we should understand the text of Genesis 1 as a polemic for this singular point, soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. Amen. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, you can reach out to me at the blog, freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com or find the Freed Thinker podcast group on Facebook. Join me again next time. We are going to continue our discussion of this topic, although it won't be a presentation of my paper. I will be responding to some objections uh, and some questions uh, that this series and my paper have raised to help give some more clarification uh, and some of the reasons why I don't agree with uh, young earth creationist arguments and rhetoric. Uh, So please, please, please uh, stay tuned next time uh, as we continue on with our discussion about creationism and Genesis and all of those fun uh, topics that go along with it. Thank you all for joining us. Good night and God bless.